It is a wonderful thing for us to gather and we think about what we just sang, Ferris, Lord Jesus, what greater name in all the universe than the name Jesus, our Redeemer, all our hope is upon him. We thank you that as was preached earlier this morning, he is the ruler of the nations. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He owns every square inch of planet earth His will will be performed in the earth. Lord, may we be found faithful servants of him and then one day be translated into the very presence and be with our Jesus forever and ever. We pray in his wonderful name. Amen. Amen. Turn with me to John chapter 3. We're going to look this evening at verses 20. Five, through the end of the chapter, verse 36. There arose, therefore, a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have borne witness, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. And so this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard of that he bears witness. No man receives his witness. He who has received his witness has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God abides on him. Now last week we spent the whole message on two verses for a reason, and that was the relationship of John the Baptist's uh, baptism compared to the baptism that Jesus' disciples were doing. We noted that the baptism of the two is essentially the same, a baptism for the cleansing of sin. And the, if there's a difference between the two is one was done by the forerunner of the Messiah, John, and one was done by the Messiah himself through his, his disciples. Therein would be the difference. But the essence is still the same, and their ministries overlapped for a period of time. Not long, but for a certain period. We also saw that the in verse 24, the, these many waters uh, that John the Baptist went to um, 
and did his baptism was not, as some of our brothers and sisters believe, is a proof for immersion because it really doesn't say that. Many waters simply means in the Jordan there were a lot of springs that came in. And many waters meant if you got hundreds or thousands of people coming, you got to have an ample source of water to baptize people. That doesn't mean that they got to go under. It just means you got to have enough water available to do baptizing of these people. And we, we looked in, in all the verses that it never means um, <clears throat> never means immersion, but it means essentially either pouring or uh, sprinkling. That's the, uh, the mode that's revealed in the scriptures. Now, in our section tonight, verses 25 to 34, we're going to see the, the necessity of the transition between the ministry of John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I've titled the sermon, or yes, the necessity of the ending of John the Baptist's ministry. And this section brings out why that was a necessity, why it had to come about. Keep in mind that the scriptures prophesied that John the Baptist would be the forerunner of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Isaiah prophesied it. He is and was that voice crying in the wilderness, preparing the way. How did he prepare the way? By insisting that people, you've got to repent of your sins. You've got to confess your sins if you're going to see the kingdom of God. So John's baptism was a baptism uh, as is brought out in Matthew chapter 3, where people came confessing their sins and be baptized by John. So in this regard, we're going to see that John's baptism was a baptism of water for the forgiveness of sins, but it was John who said, now I come baptizing with water, but he who comes after me, whose sandals I'm not even worthy to unlatch, He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, John the uh, Jesus' disciples were still performing a water baptism like John, but it was done through the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the promised one who has come. Now, in verse 26 and following, we have an instance where there was a, a, a discussion between uh, a Jew, we're told, and, and John's disciples, all about, as verse 25 means, about purification. There were a lot of purification rites, cleansing rites that were done in the Old Covenant. And so there's this discussion arising between John's disciples and this Jew. And this Jew points out to John's disciples, well, the one who... John bore witness to who's beyond the Jordan he's baptizing and everybody's coming to him so they want to know well John they must have been thinking what does this mean about your baptism is is it becoming null and void and we're told here um, they they were just wondering is there any value in John's baptism since everybody seems to be going over to Jesus's uh, baptism. Now, and they wondered, and you'd have to say the, the disciples of John 
were wondering, is this baptism that Jesus' disciples are doing, is it going to totally eclipse John's baptism? Is it going to eclipse his ministry? Is that the implication? So every indication is they weren't the happiest about it. And they came to John and said, look, uh, this is what's happening. They were defending their, uh, as it were, their master. And they're somewhat jealous, it would seem to imply. And it is John who has to correct their misunderstanding. John himself corrects their thinking. And obviously, John's going to point out they really didn't understand his ministry. They didn't understand why he came. Now, as you look at verse 27, John says he begins to correct their thinking by saying, verse 27, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Now, John explains essentially that every servant of God has his place in the kingdom of God. And it's a particular place in the eternal plan of God. Now, John is, John is not going to lay claim to an honor that has not been bestowed by him from above. He's not about to do that. Instead of complaining about Jesus's ministry overshadowing his, John was essentially telling his disciples, instead of being embittered that there are more people following Jesus than me, you ought to be rejoicing that that is happening. So John the Baptist fully understood his place in the sovereign plan of God. He was the preparer. He was, in one sense, the inferior. And John understood his rightful place. Do you remember in the baptism when, when Jesus was coming to be baptized by John? John looks at him and says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And he says to Jesus, Look, why are you coming to me? You need to baptize me, not me, you. And that's when Jesus says, no, John, we must fulfill all things. You must baptize me. And we talked about that, what that implied with Jesus. But John understood he was the inferior. He understood his purpose in coming as really all Preachers, all prophets or preachers need to come to understand God has raised them up. And God has raised them up for a purpose. There are two great examples I want us to turn to briefly to demonstrate that God is the one who raises men up and gives them their ministries. The first is turn to Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. The weeping prophet. Now, if you back up to verse 4 of Jeremiah 1, here's what it says. Now, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, 
Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. Now you think about that. Before he was even conceived, God says, I knew you. Now that term, I knew you, is a very intimate term. And so, Jeremiah, in all of eternity, I planned to make you a prophet. I consecrated you, Jeremiah, when you were in your mother's womb. You were destined to be my prophet to Israel. So his ministry was determined from all eternity and even before he was born. And another great example of that is the Apostle Paul. Turn with me to the book of Galatians chapter 1. Galatians 1, and let's start at verse 11. It says, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen before being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when he who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. Just like Jeremiah, this man, Saul of Tarsus, who in much of his life was the great persecutor of the church of Jesus, And yet, though that was part, the Apostle Paul says, even before I was born, God was determined to make me the apostle to the Gentile world. And for a period of time, I'm going to be in a great antagonism against the church. But it was God's plan all along. Do you think uh, Saul was planning to be converted when he was on the road to Damascus, going off to arrest Christians in Damascus and drag them back to Jerusalem? I don't think so. But Jesus met him. Why did Jesus meet him? Because it was predestined. That's why. Paul says, I I was destined. And remember after um, Saul encounters Jesus, blinds him, and he goes to Damascus and Jesus reveals himself to Ananias, who's going to restore his sight. And Ananias says, well, this is the great persecutor of the church. And he says, well, once he receives sight, Jesus says to him, I'm going to reveal myself of how much he must suffer for my sake. But I have raised him up 
to be the apostle to the Gentile world. God has his plan for all his ministers. And it's a wonderful thing to realize it's going to happen. Now, that, what we don't understand is the interplay with human accountability and divine sovereignty. That's still a mystery. Nonetheless, when God wants to go to save, he's going to save. And who he wants to have is his preachers. He's going to raise them up as his preachers. John the Baptist understood his ministry. And he understood that his ministry must come to an end. If you turn back to John 3, and he gives, he gives a, um, a great illustration to point out his relationship basically with God. And he tells this story, look, look at it, in verse 29. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. And so this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. Now, what Notice who, what John is doing. He says, who, who is John in this? He says, um, I'm the friend. I, it's like, I'm the best man. The bridegroom is Jesus. And when the best man, all the attention in a wedding is on who? Is it on the best man? Of course not. It's on the bridegroom. And the friend, the best man who is John, he says, I'm that man. I rejoice when I hear the bridegroom's voice. I'm not jealous. I, my joy is full. And he makes the statement, and this is why we can say that the ministry of John was destined to end very soon because he says, I'm, notice he says, I must decrease. The preparer must give way to the one to whom he was sent to testify of. He must give way to the Messiah himself. And so Jesus has got to increase and I've got to decrease. You know, talking about hearing the voice of the best man rejoices when he hears the voice of the bridegroom. I cannot help but think, if you remember the story, when, when Mary was pregnant with the God-man, Jesus, she goes and visits her cousin, Elizabeth, who happens to be pregnant with John the Baptist. And you remember when Mary came and greeted her cousin? Do you remember what Elizabeth said? The baby within me leaped for joy at the voice of you saying what you did. Now, isn't that interesting? Uh, it, it, to bring out that John says, I, I can hear the voice of the bridegroom. The minute he heard the mother of the bridegroom rejoicing, the baby John leapt for joy. 
John understood his ministry. He understood eventually it had to come to an end and he was wanting it to come to an end because it's Jesus who needs to be magnified. Now, when he says, I must decrease and he must increase, and we've already mentioned the fact that God is the one who raises up preachers anyway, has their ministries and plan, how to use them during uh, their lifetime. All preachers need to understand their role in God's uh, plan and not elevate themselves in such a way to be envious of other men's gifts. For example, not all the preachers are the same. Not all teachers are the same. When I was in seminary, me and some others who uh, later came along to have a significant ministry, we knew very, uh, very shortly we were not of the same magnitude as Greg Bonson. I was 24 at the time, he was 26, and already had written a magnum, a tome, and professors at his seminary were coming to him for exegesis for the student. He was far above everybody else. And so we realized we're not of the same cut as that, but we don't become jealous or should be jealous. We ought to rejoice that God has raised up someone like that. I remember Joe Moorcraft making a statement uh, years ago. He says, I was always comforted to know that somewhere in the world, Greg Bonson was tearing apart the unbelievers. (laughs) And so God has given men differing gifts. Now here's the thing. All of those ministers, all of those that God has raised up They are servants of the master. Who's that? Jesus. And ultimately, we must be concerned about how we please Jesus. Not what people think of us. Not that the focus should be on us. Uh, Every minister of the gospel desire should be that Jesus is magnified, that somehow, Lord, let you, let you use me in such a way that Jesus is built up. Not me, but Jesus. They have the same attitude that John had. I must decrease, he must increase. The whole point is that God gets the glory. Now, Paul understood this. Turn with me to 1 uh, Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians 3. Verses 3 through 10. So 1 Corinthians 3, beginning at verse 3 through verse 10. Now he's having to rebuke the Corinthian church for basically the jealousy, the, the division that was occurring within the church. He says, for you still are fleshly, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly and are you not walking like mere men? For one one says, I'm of Paul, and another says, I'm of Apollos. Are you not mere men? What then is Apollos? 
And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is what? Is anything. But God who causes the growth. So the Apostle Paul says, you got this division who ministered to you and he says, that's, that's acting childish. Who is Apollos? And who is Paul? Me, he says. We're just servants. That's all we are. And it so happens, I planted. Paul was an evangelist. He was a church planner. Apollos was more of those who would come in like a pastor and would build. We know from the scriptures that the Bible says that he was mighty in the scriptures. And when he was sent from Ephesus to Corinth, he would uh, refute the Jews in the synagogue, proving that Jesus was the Messiah. So they both had differing ministries and they shouldn't be any jealousy. And there wasn't between those two. And no one should elevate one above the other. We all have one purpose. That is that Jesus be magnified. That is his goal. That should be the goal. You know, um, <clears throat> pride in the hearts of preachers has been the ruin of so many preachers over the years. I've seen this several times, sadly, in my 40 plus years of being in the, in the ministry. I've seen the devastating consequences when pride enters, it, it is very sad. You see, the, the point here is we're going to be judged. All the workers in the Lord's vineyard are going to be judged by the faithfulness that they had to their ministry that was allotted to them. Scripture says, to whom much is given, much is expected. But in the end, all the, the, the ministers will stand before Jesus and they will have to give account to him as to how faithful were we in the discharge of the ministry that you gave us. And so some would say, well, yeah, I'd, I'd like to have a ministry like John MacArthur, you know, with thousands and thousands or like R.C. Sproul, thousands that listen. No, what matters is, Am I faithful in the area that God gave me? And the determination of Jesus' commendation will be not on how many people we reach, but how faithful we were with what God gave us. That's how it's going to be determined. You know, with, with this regard... When John said he had to decrease and Jesus had to increase, Jesus paid him the highest compliment. In, in Matthew 11, 11, turn to Matthew 11, 11. It's in the context that John has been arrested. He's in prison and he sends word 
through his disciples to Jesus, and we've already, I've already talked about this, John's question to Jesus was, are you, or, or is, are you the he, the one that is expected, or are we to look for someone else? Now, I mentioned that I think the most accurate interpretation of that is John was not doubting. And the reason John was not doubting is who spoke to him from heaven saying, this is my beloved son, (laughs) God the Father. He heard the voice of God. He knew, he knew Jesus was the Messiah. That's why John said, I'm not worthy to unlatch his sandals. He he understood that Jesus was the Messiah, but he knew that there had to be a transition between his ministry and Jesus. And he understood his place, as I've already mentioned. But look at the compliment that Jesus gives to John um, through his disciples. Look at verse 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now what greater uh, commendation than for the Lord of heaven and earth to say, you are the greatest of all men born of women at one point. Now, what, what did he mean? You were the greatest born, and yet the least in the kingdom of God now is greater than John. What's the differences in the two covenants? There's the difference. John was the last prophet of the Old Testament. And you and I stand in a greater position than than even John was or any of those in the Old Testament because of what? Because we have the Holy Spirit abiding in us on an ongoing basis demonstrated on the day of Pentecost. Everything changed. So John understood his place. He knew he had to decrease, but it was a magnificent ministry that God had given to him. Now we see that in this regard, look at verse 32, turn back to John 3. John says that Jesus, who is from above, bears witness of what he has seen and heard. In other words, Jesus is the one who reveals God to men. Now, I know we'll deal with this as we get later in John, but I just want to touch base. Let me just, I want you to briefly turn with me to demonstrate that it's Jesus who reveals God the Father to men. Turn over to John 8, look at verse 26. Jesus is saying, I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the the world. In other words, I've heard it from the Father, and I'm simply telling you what I heard from my Father. Turn over to John 14, verse 9. When 
one of his disciples, Philip, says, Will you show us the Father? And notice what Jesus said in verse 9. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you and you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? Now, how did Jesus show him the Father? Verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me, he does the works. That's how you've seen me. That's how you've seen the Father. You've heard my words. And I've come from the Father, and I'm simply telling you what my Father has said. Turn over to uh, John 15, verse 15. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. And then turn over to John 17, verses 4 through 8. This is in his high priestly prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is saying, praying to his Father, starting at verse 4. I glorified thee on the earth, having accomplished the work which thou hast given me to do. And now glorify thou me together with thyself, Father, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. I manifested thy name to men whom thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, thou gave them to me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have come to know that everything that has given me is from thee. For the words which thou gavest me, I have given to them, and they received them, and truly understood that I came forth from thee, and they believed that thou didst send me. Jesus is the great revealer of truth. And what, what happened? They received him. Now, turn back to John 3. And it says, verse 31 and following, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has, what he has seen and heard, that he bears witness. And no man receives his witness. He who has received his witness has set his seal to this that God is true. For, for he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. So Jesus is the great revealer of truth. And for the most part, he says, I've, I've borne witness to who God is, and guess what? Men rejected it. It goes back to John 1.11 when it says that he came to his own and his own received him not. He came to the covenant nation, 
who had been long awaiting the Messiah. The Messiah comes, and what do they do? They reject him. They reject him. They didn't receive him. Some of you did receive him. And who were those that received him? Well, John, we looked at, we've already looked at John 1, 12, and 13. It says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God who were born not of the flesh, not of, the, of blood, nor the will of man, but of God. Now, those have received it. His disciples received it. Only a few received it. For the most part, Jesus' ministry, most people, most people rejected him. Now, we know that none can speak the words of God without the Spirit of God, right? He, it is the Spirit who reveals truth. Now, we've mentioned this passage before in Matthew 16, 17. How did Peter come to understand when Jesus asked them, who do men say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter, it's my father has revealed that to you. You didn't come up with it on your own. It's my father. Now, Jesus, remember what um, we are told in his baptism, Jesus' baptism by John? When the dove came down, representing the Holy Spirit, says he was empowered by the Spirit with full measure. Now, why? Well, the Spirit, the Son of Man is going to need all the help that he can in facing what he must do to be, to atone for men's sins. Jesus possesses that fullness in the fullest, I mean, in great measure. Now, we're told that the scripture says in John 3, it says, look at verse 35. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. given all things into his hand. You know, we'll just turn to, to John 5, look at verses 20 through 23, and you'll see in one sense what is meant there. John 5, 20 through 23. For the Father loves the Son... Notice the similarity of that with verse chapter three. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself is doing and greater works than these will he show him that you may marvel. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son also gives life to whom he wishes. Let not even the father, for not even the father judges anyone but he has given all judgment to the Son in order that all may honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, 
He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. The great judge on judgment day is going to be Jesus. Matthew 25 brings this out quite clearly. That when Jesus, bringing all the scripture together, when Jesus comes back, when he brings an end to human history, he will gather everybody that has ever lived and he will separate the sheep from the goats and they all will have to give account to Jesus because the Father has given all judgment to the Son. So Jesus is the judge on that great day of judgment. And so we have to know how we stack up. And as you look here, their last verse for the evening, John three thirty six. Notice what he says. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. What verse 36 brings out are the consequences of either believing in Jesus or not believing in Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, you're going to have eternal life and you're going to enter into the joy of of the Lord. But if you don't obey Jesus, meaning you don't believe in Jesus, just like Jess brought out in the sermon this morning on the wheat and the tares, what's going to be the fate of those who don't believe in Jesus? Well, it says the wrath of God abides on him, meaning they will be sent where there is gnashing of teeth And elsewhere, the scripture says, where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. That's where they will be sent. Why? Because they did not obey the gospel of Jesus. Meaning they did not, in obeying the gospel, what is the demand of the gospel? Believe in Jesus. That's the demand. And if you don't meet the demand, you got to bear the consequences. Turn, I know Jess preached on this a couple weeks ago, but turn, turn over to 1 John chapter 5, look at verses 11 through 13. 1 John 5, 11 through 13. For this is the message which we have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. Now I'm in the wrong one here. Chapter 5, verse 11. And the witness is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. He who has the son has the life. He who does not have the son of God does not have the life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know you have eternal life. 
Now, all of us who believe in that message can be assured emphatically that we have eternal life. Now, what's the opposite? Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Second Thessalonians 1 and beginning at verse 6. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. That's the consequence of not believing the gospel. In John 3, how do you end? He says, all those who do not obey the gospel, all those who do not obey the Son shall not see life, but God's wrath abides on him. That's the consequence. So we've said this before, that the, the greatest sin in the world is to hear the gospel spoken by Jesus' little ones. You know, I've always been amazed that Jesus referred to those who he sent out, his apostles, as his little ones. You know, lest we ministers get filled with pride, I keep reminding myself, I'm, a, I'm but just one of Jesus' little ones. That's all. But the significance of Jesus' little ones when they preach Jesus, you better listen or else. Our last verse, turn to Luke 10. Look at verses 10 through 16. Luke 10. 10 through 16. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into the streets and say, even the dust of your city which clings to our feet, we wipe off in protest against you. Yet the sure, be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I say to you, it will be more tolerable in the day for Sodom, and for Sodom than for that city. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes." But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the judgment than for you. 
and you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will be brought down to hell. The one who listens to you listens to me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. I mean, there you have it. It can't be more plain, can it? The greatest sin is to reject the preaching of the gospel by Jesus' preachers. Now, we don't understand, but we do know from the scriptures, there is, just like there are greater rewards in heaven, there are going to be some lights that shine brighter than others. Likewise, Jesus said in Luke 12, 47 and 48, that there will be some who will receive greater lashes than others. All that we can say is that in hell, there's going to be degrees of suffering in hell. I mean, that's that's what we can conclude. I mean, all are going to be suffering. There'll be gnashing of teeth of all, but some will get it worse because I guess they were worse sinners, but you don't end up there unless you disobey the gospel. So the answer is, don't disobey the gospel. So let's bring it to a conclusion. Why did John the Baptist's ministry have to come to an end? Because he was of the old covenant. He was preparing for the Messiah. Once the Messiah has come, his ministry is over. He served his purpose. He served the purpose for which God had ordained from him through prophecy centuries earlier, but it was over. So when he was arrested, notice when John was arrested, it was right after the baptism of Jesus by him. Jesus goes off into the desert to be tempted of the devil, and it says, shortly thereafter, John was arrested by Herod and put in jail. And more than likely, from what he said to Herod, he knew he was not coming out of that jail cell. But he understood, I, my, perp, my, my ministry is ended. The Messiah is here. Listen to him. Listen to those who were his preachers. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that you raise up men You use them for your purpose. Lord, lay it on our hearts the necessity to proclaim that glorious gospel which will determine the fate of men in history. Help us to be faithful to the ministry you give us. And may Jesus be uplifted. We ask in his glorious name, amen.